Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Always great to be with you this morning, uh, be with you in God's house today. We're continuing on with our sermon series called Aha Moments in the Season of Epiphany. It's part of our church here. Just a reminder, we use that word epiphany when we talk about having a moment of revelation, right? I just had an epiphany, right? It's an aha moment. Epiphany in the church is just like that. A light bulb goes off in the mind of the church, an insight is made, a revelation is made, known to us all. And it's a season where we encounter God and we make realizations about Him and how He works in the world and in our lives. Aha moments. But just a reminder, as you all know, the real sermon series title is Dude Moments, right? Because when I realize something, just like all of you, when we have an epiphany, we say, dude, right? Okay, who says that? Okay. Okay, you're with me, my faithful few out there, all right? Like, dude, dude, I never thought of it that way. Dude, I just realized, right? So we got to keep the aha front thing going for the sanctuary folks, but we know in here it's dude moments. So we've had a lot of dude moments in the past few weeks, past five, six weeks, whatever it's been, and we have a lot of them in our reading today. But first, let me tell you something about what I did this last week. This past week, my family and I, we ate at In-N-Out Burger, just like the rest of you, right? No. Out of curiosity, who had In-N-Out Burger this past week? Just raise your hand really high. Okay, keep it up. How about in the last two weeks if you've had In-N-Out Burger? Keep your hand up high. Your first weekers, keep it up too, all right? I want to see how many. If you had In-N-Out Burger in the last month, raise your hand, all right? That's like the majority, I'm thinking, okay? A lot of people, right? Raise your hand if you've had In-N-Out Burger two times or more in the past week. Anybody? All right, the, the dedicated few out there, all right? Anyway, well, when you go to In-N-Out Burger, there's really basically only three things that you can get, right? You get some sort of burger, some sort of drink, and you get fries. I love In-N-Out fries. In-N-Out fries are good. Though in my house, I have to admit, we do have a debate at times. Are the Chick-fil-A fries better or the In-N-Out fries better? Um, I know they're kind of different genres, but you got to, you know, have a little competition about stuff. So anyway, back to my In-N-Out fries. So we got a bag. I got the tray of fries at the bottom of the bag of fries. You know what I'm talking about? So you order like five fries, they load them in a bag, and then there's that tray at the bottom. And the tray at the bottom is usually mixed with a bunch of little packets like this, right? Somehow they find their way down to the bottom and you get that bottom tray and there's like there's like salt packets, five or six mixed in with the fries. And I was just looking at that and I was like, who would put more salt on those fries, right? I mean, why do they even give that out? They're pretty salty already. Why even add any more? Amen, brother. I see your hand in the back. It triggered a memory. You are just like my dad, right? I brought home in and out to my dad's house one day, and he like gets the fries out, rips open the pack, and starts pouring a bunch of salt all over the fries. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do that, but uh, it's, I'm not going to be a judge. You know, different people have different standards, different taste with salt, right? Some people eat fries with salt as they come. Some people add a whole bunch of salt on there, right? But I've never heard of anyone ordering fries without salt, right? I mean, okay, there might be a few of you out there, but I guess it's possible because I went on to the secret menu at In-N-Out Burger, and apparently you can actually order fries without salt. I think it's just a theory. It's never really happened in, in reality, right? Because why in the world would you do that, right? You know, just eat a salad then, okay? <clears throat> salt is a necessary ingredient to fries. Now, we might debate in the room how much salt, light salt, normal salt, or add on a bunch of salt like my dad and whoever that was in the back. Is that Mark? 
Yeah, uh-huh, he likes his salt on his fries, all right? <clears throat> now, I'm pretty sure, though, that you're gonna, you're, there's always going to be some kind of amount of salt, and I'm pretty sure that Jesus would agree with me on this, and I think I have the scriptures to back me up. Because in the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount, it starts out, Matthew chapter 5, with the blessings, the Beatitudes, right? And then in part 2, right away, Jesus comes in, Matthew 5, verse 13, on the screen says, you are the salt of the earth, right? But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot just like fries without salt on them, Okay. All right, I know that Jesus isn't directly talking about French fries, but it's pretty obvious that he prefers salt on his In-N-Out fries. Now, how much does he want? We have to wait to heaven to figure that out. But anyway, what is Jesus talking about here when he says to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth? There's a lot of debate. I mean, you can, theologians have written all about this when it comes to this verse. And part of our problem is when we think of that, you are the salt of the earth, we hear that, automatically we're going to like, French fries and food, right? Or if you live in, in snow land, you're thinking of salt in the roads, right? But salt in Jesus' day was a big deal. It was much a bigger deal than it is in our day. Salt in Jesus' day was used like money, okay? They would trade salt. It was like currency. Salt was also a preservative because they didn't have any refrigerators back then. In fact, so some scholars say, well, since it was a preservative, Jesus is saying that his disciples would preserve morality. They would prevent moral decay in the world. Uh, it was also used as a fertilizer, right? So I'm glad Jesus didn't use that metaphor. You're the fertilizer of the earth, but it kind of enhanced growth, right? So some people are saying, well, the disciples are supposed to enhance growth in the world. Uh, it was an essential element in the diet, kind of like us. So some theologians will say, well, yeah, the disciples were to be this sort of God-enhanced kingdom seasoning to the world. And then there's about six other usages that we could talk about. You see salt connected with sacrifices. You see salt connected with covenants. You see salt connected with loyalty and peace and friendship and wisdom and a couple other things. And so when we look at it that way, we realize that we can't really push any of those sort of metaphors too, uh, too far. But what we can do is say that salt was extremely important, apparently way more important than just seasoning uh, French fries, right? Salt was an extremely vital, important necessity for everyday life in Jesus' time. And so when, you, when it's taken that way, we begin to see that Jesus is saying to his followers, to his disciples, he's saying that they are the extremely vital, important necessity for the life of this earth. I mean, that's powerful. That's, that's a dude moment. That's an aha moment that I, more than that, we, we the followers of Jesus are the, not a, but the extremely vital, important necessity for the life of this earth. And when you think about that for a moment, and you pause on it long enough, it's humbling. It's both humbling and it's empowering at the same time. And Jesus, he, he's like, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about what I mean by this. And he, he switches from this metaphor from salt to light. And in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. That means you are Light for the sake of the world. You are light for the benefit of the world. And I think you would all agree with me that the world needs light, right? People know this. I mean, not just us Christian folks in the, in the church. 
Just this past Friday, uh, we took our daughters up to uh, see a band called Lucky Chops, one of our favorite bands up in L.A., and I got to tell you, Ben, the concert, it was awesome. It was great music, great entertainment. It was of the highest order, and I'm sitting here listening to this band play, enjoying the music. It was just such a great night, and the music kind of got down low, and then one of the, the band members grabs the mic, and he starts talking to all of us gathered, and it was, like, it was almost like we were in church. And he started talking about light. And he started talking about the great music that we were all experiencing and, and the great uh, community we had in the room of people of different class and race and, and culture and age. All of them gathered together in the room. And he was talking about light. And he said, there's light in this room. There's light within us. Music brings light to our life. This beautiful gift of music and community we're having. And he said, the world needs this light. We, we got to bring that light out into the world. I'm sitting there listening to this guy going... It was amazing. He wasn't using the words of God, but he was talking about God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. That part of God in the Trinity that we talk about, the creator God, the God who created the gift of music, that good music is a reflection of God, a God who created a spirit of unity and love amongst fellow human beings. When you see that happening, that's, that's a reflection of our triune God, who is a God of relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whom every human being is created in that image. Our world needs that. It needs that sort of light. And this band, Lucky Chops, we're talking about it in this sort of creation sort of way. And it got me thinking how when people tap into the image of the God who created them and who created this world, there's an experience of light. And that's good. But that's not the complete picture of light. Jesus actually gets to it eventually. and said there's even more light than what you're experiencing. He continues in verse 14, says, you are the light of the world. He says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Here's a picture of a city on a hill. There's no way. There's no way you can hide a city on a hill, right? Jesus continues in verse 15 and says, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. This is a picture of a lamp that was in Jesus' day. This is what they were talking about. And Jesus' day, the whole house is one room, okay? They didn't have multi-room homes. It was just one room. They put it up on the stand, and that little light would shine throughout the whole entire house. No one would ever cover it. They wouldn't even think to do that because they needed the light to see. And then so Jesus continues and says, in the same way, like the city, like the lamp, let your light shine before others. Jesus is saying, this light must shine. Let your good deeds, let your good words, let them shine. Light into darkness salt to the earth. Jesus says, you are the extremely vital, important necessity for the life of the earth, for this world. Jesus is saying, this is who you are. For everyone to see, for all to behold, for everyone to experience. Why? Jesus tells us why. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that, so that they may see your good deeds, experience your good deeds, receive your good deeds. Why? 
This is the other part of the light, so that they can glorify your Father in heaven, who's made known to you by Jesus. Your salt, your light is for other people so that they might praise the heavenly Father, come to believe in him, trust in him. Your light is so that their trust in him, their belief in him might become stronger. All of our good deeds and good words of salt and light, they are for other people so that others can be at peace with God. And in these verses, Jesus, he's, he's calling us back to that. He's reminding us of our, our true selves, of who we are in him. We are salt and we are light. And when he's doing that, he's calling us to live extraordinary lives, salty lives, light-filled lives. Now, sometimes that's in big ways, powerful ways. Sometimes it's kind of pretty big. Sometimes it's just small ways, like being kind to each other smiling at each other, speaking encouraging words into each other's lives, putting the best construction on things, telling the people in your life that that you love them, being nice to your neighbors, building friendships, seasoning life with salt. It did another little dude moment I had in there was that, you know, sometimes people can only handle a little bit of salt, right? Sometimes Christians, we want to get out there and rip open the salt package, just dip, you know, flow it on everything. And people are like, whoa, slow down, right? We have to know who we're reaching out to. We have to know their comfort zones. We have to know how much salt they can handle. Sometimes God, as he calls us to be salt and light, he's calling us to higher things, big things, like, like as a church, our, our work with Grace Works in, in Kenya or our work with vulnerable children through all of our different foster ministries. Or maybe as an individual, uh, God is calling you to do good, to be salt and light to a family member who's wronged you or a friend or a co-worker who's hurt you, to, calling you to take the higher road. And then sometimes living salt in life lives is, it's huge. It's epic. And it's history changing. As I was reading that Old Testament reading that we read just a moment ago from Isaiah 58, and I encourage you to read the whole reading, uh, the, the whole verse just really speaks to us, I think. And see, back in those days, in Isaiah's days, uh, the people of God, they thought they were being really righteous. They were being real religious because they were having a fasting day. They were humbling themselves, they thought, because they fasted one day. But they were treating their fellow humans uh, poorly. I mean, oppressing them. And that's when God comes in through his prophet Isaiah and he says, Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen? The kind of life I have chosen? The kind of good works I have chosen for you? He said, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. I love that image. Nothing can stop the dawn. The light of the dawn, the darkness runs from that, right? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And as I was reading this verse this past week, I couldn't help but think, uh, this is Black History Month. This past Tuesday was Rosa Parks' birthday, 
February 4th, here's a picture of her. I couldn't help but think of her staying seated on that bus in Montgomery, refusing to move to a new seat because she was black to make room for a white person. December 1st, 1955, Rosa could no longer stand the injustice and the oppression done out of racist motives, not just for herself, but for all people, all cultures, all races, all humanity. Her action, I would say, her good deed, it served as a catalyst for the 381-day boycott of the Montgomery bus system, which ultimately led to the eradication of racist laws in our legal system. Rosa Parks shined the light of God by doing a good work. And listen to this. This is crazy. A good work that was illegal. Imagine that. It kind of sounds like Jesus and the Pharisees. Sometimes we build up so many rules and laws and legislations, we get so far from God and his heart. My friends, on December 20th, 1956, a year and a few days later after Rosa Parks was arrested for not moving out of her seat, it was the night before everyone could ride the bus equally again, integrated. And Martin Luther King Jr., who was leading the movement at the time, he spoke on that night before it. He spoke these light-infused, salt-of-the-earth words. He said this, He says, as we go back to the buses, let us be loving enough to turn an enemy into a friend. He said, we must now move from protest to reconciliation. It is my firm conviction that God is working in Montgomery. He said, let all men of goodwill, both Negro and white, continue to work with him. That's God. And then he says, with this dedication, Working with God, we will be able to emerge from the bleak and desolate midnight. That's the darkness, right? The darkness of man's inhumanity to man. We will be able to emerge to the bright and glittering daybreak of freedom and justice. Isaiah 58, verse 8. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Jesus says, you, all of you, are the light of the world. And Jesus is not just saying, hey, carry this light, or uh, can you deliver this light for me, or reflect this light. He's saying that in all reality, you are the light of the world. I saw you, he says, I called you, and I've made you light for the sake of the world. That's humbling, right? It's powerful. It's an aha, dude moment. We're the light of the world. Rosa Parks is the light of the world. Martin Luther King Jr. is the light of the world. The 12 disciples are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. We are the light of the world. And Jesus says the light must shine. But sometimes it seems impossible. Sometimes it seems difficult. 
And sometimes it feels so dark that they think there's no way, no way, no way we can shine. And that's when we remember, that's why we come to places like this and we realize that we are the light of the world because Jesus is the light of the world. As the scriptures we just read, we rely on his spirit. We rely on the spirit's power, not our own power. And we preach Christ, and we preach Christ crucified, and we preach Christ risen from the grave, and we preach Christ who's coming again. And we rely on his light to shape our. John chapter 8, Jesus spoke to the people. He said, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you follow Jesus. He is the light of the world. You have the light of life. You are the light of the world. And the next time you're at In-N-Out Burger, you bite into those salty fries. Well, you know, dude, right? Right? 